right, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. When I was in graduate school, whenever I wrote a paper, I usually read it aloud to my wife to make sure it flowed well enough and made sense. My poor wife. But we still talk about what was covered in those writings on occasion when something happening in our times relates to it. Now that I've completed that American history and government degree, I look back on all those papers and thought that one way to refresh my memory and maybe get the content out to a wider audience, would be to read them on this podcast. So this episode is the first of hopefully many to come. Regarding this first essay, I knew a guy who every 4th of July, while most folks were posting photos on social media of family barbecues, the American flag, and fireworks, he would heckle their holiday joy by posting this quote, Quote, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes, unquote. It's from some movie he loved, and while it has a grain of truth in it, there's also a lot of ignorance and deception within it. So my hope is this first essay might remedy some of that potshot junior high-level comprehension of history. Parliament's passage of the Stamp Act would be the first in a series of missteps and overreaches by the British government caused by both the necessity of revenue and the unnecessary display of authority, which ultimately pushed the American colonies away from their mother country and into forming their own nation. How did this come about? Back in 1764, Prime Minister George Grenville had hinted in Parliament that a stamp tax might be necessary in addition to the Sugar Act and American Revenue Act to help offset the cost the British government had incurred while trying to defend the colonists against France and their Indian allies during the French and Indian War. The way Grenville presented this information gave the colonists the impression that he would be willing to hear other tax-raising proposals that they might be able to come up with. But when Grenville would later meet with colonial representatives, it became clear that he was not interested in any discussion as to an alternative means of raising the needed money. The minister simply wanted them to give their endorsement to the idea of a stamp tax, whose details they would have to learn about after Parliament passed it. Many American leaders repeatedly proposed allowing the colonies to create their own specific revenue-raising schemes and even a different stamp tax in an attempt to collect money in a manner that would take into account the colonies' unique and often fragile economy. These offers were all dismissed by Grenville, and so early the next year, the Duties in American Colonies Act of 1765 was passed, and hence the Stamp Act became law. From that point, all paper documents would require a purchased paper stamp on its surface, regardless of whether it was a contract, pamphlet, religious paper, or playing cards. And there were different rates for each stamp depending on the document. A law license was 10 pounds, and a college degree was 2 pounds. So as to what the British Secretary of the Treasury, Thomas Waitley, admitted was to discourage Americans from pursuing elevated careers. Also, if the colonists purchased unused paper, it had to be pre-stamped, 
which granted a monopoly to certain paper companies in the good graces of the crown. One would have had a difficult time topping the effectiveness that the Stamp Act achieved in uniting the Americans of every class against the English Parliament and creating a well-documented narrative of its poorly thought-out blunder. With paper at the center of any person's daily life, nearly every colonist who submitted to the tax would be affected adversely, with some professionals in particular risking financial ruin. In addition, with taxes heaviest on the legal and newspaper industries, the Parliament would bring upon themselves the wrath of some of the most articulated minds in print. The first essay that began to articulate the American reaction to the Stamp Act was written by an anonymous writer calling himself, quote, a plain yeoman, unquote. Challenging the idea that Americans were childlike dependents on Britain, the essay asserted that the colonists were, quote, common subjects of the same king, unquote, and Parliament had no right to treat them any different from those English citizens on the British island. Imposing a tax without any representative say in the matter was something the inhabitants of the British Isle would never be subject to. So why the colonists? In the Virginia legislature rose one of the most notable voices against the Stamp Act in the person of Patrick Henry. The lawyer proposed five resolutions that would become known as the Virginia Resolves. It stated again that the colonists were every bit British as those in the home country and thus had the same rights, including self-taxation and the right to be self-governed. The resolutions were printed in several newspapers in other colonies, which brought other state legislatures to proclaim similar sentiments. The Rhode Island Assembly went even further by authorizing their officials to ignore the, quote, unconstitutional act, unquote. Groups of affected angry citizens began meeting on their own in town halls, churches, and other spaces to decide what they themselves could do. Boycotts on British goods were called as they had during the earlier sugar tax crisis. Radicals such as Samuel Adams and his fellow Sons of Liberty in Boston acted on their disgust in the printed word, Adams proclaiming to those colonists who were still loyal to the king and parliament, quote, If you love wealth better than liberty, the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom, go from us in peace. We ask not your counsels or arms, Crouch down and lick the hands which feed you. May your chains sit lightly upon you, and may posterity forget that ye were our countrymen. Unquote. But these colonial forces also took action. They decided to focus their ire on the stamp master, Andrew Oliver, hanging him in effigy on the Liberty Tree, and then carrying the dummy through the streets in a mock funeral. More extreme elements of Boston's angry residents located and destroyed a building near the docks that was reckoned to be a future stamped paper distributor, while a mob showed up to Oliver's now-vacated home, smashing windows and anything of value inside the house. Though the Bostonians' protests were probably the most vitriolic, similar displays of violence and anger occurred throughout the colonies over the preceding months after the Stamp Act was passed. One mob demanded of one official that the unused stamps should be handed over, after which these materials were destroyed. All of these reactions caused many government officials who were supposed to implement the tax to flee their homes and, of course, leaving them unable to enforce the law. Because of all of these factors, the Stamp Act was largely ignored by the colonists, they carrying on with their lives and businesses 
without bothering to purchase the hated, and in some places difficult to actually find, stamps. That October in New York City, a meeting among the colonial legislatures was called to form an official unified response to the Stamp Act. This Stamped Act Congress created a declaration which more or less reiterated Patrick Henry's resolutions and was sent to Parliament. Back in England, because of personal disputes between Lord Grenville and King George III, the former was replaced by a Whig minister, the Marquis of Rockingham. Because of both the Whig principled opposition to the Stamped Act and the financial damage the American boycott was doing to British merchants, Parliament, after months of debate, finally repealed the tax in March of that next year. This was an emboldening victory for the colonists and a major embarrassment for the crown. In spite of the American declarations thanking the parliament and king for their benevolent changes of minds, those in the mother country who had lost face had already set up the next battle by simultaneously passing the Declaratory Act while repealing the Stamp Act. This next act was more of a statement in that it made clear that in spite of the repeal, Parliament had just as much right to pass taxes on the unrepresented colonists as they did the represented citizens on English soil. This pattern of taxing, repealing, but then reminding the colonists of their lesser rights with another power-flaunting action would seem to serve as a template of things to come. And to show that the Declaratory Act was no empty sentiment, very shortly after the Stamp Act was repealed, Parliament next passed the Townshend Acts which was the external imposition of import duties on glass, paper, tea, and other material not manufactured in America. Again, the colonists reacted with even more outrage at the stubborn arrogance of the English government. At this time, a popular essay called Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania would be published as a pamphlet and would this time not only challenge the right of Parliament to tax the colonists both internally and externally via duties, but also would call for an even more thoroughly organized boycott. The colonists agreed, which by the end of the decade led to British income from exports to America to drop by two-thirds. In reaction to a, quote, circular letter, unquote, that had emanated from the Massachusetts House of Representatives deeming the Townshend Acts unconstitutional and was making its way around to the other legislatures, that state's royal governor dissolved its assembly. The colonists reacted by creating actual mob rule by holding its own assembly and began governing itself with local organizations and associations. With the local royal government having lost control of the situation, in 1768, 4,000 troops were sent into Boston's town of 15,000 to occupy and pacify the rebels. There were many abuses committed by the troops, all of which were documented by Samuel Adams and his radicals, and then sent to New York to be published in the Journal of the Times. These papers were distributed throughout the colonies as well. To be fair, and as we have seen, one could accuse many colonists of going too far or being unfair with their reactionary activities. Bostonians constantly harassed both British soldiers and local merchants who refused to participate in the boycotts, adding to the already tense situation. One of these acts of agitation led to the first death on the road to outright revolution. On February 22, 1770, some schoolboys led a crowd to the home of Theophilus Lily and placed an effigy 
of he and other defiant importers at his door. The events eventually led to shots being fired by a royalist informer named Ebenezer Richardson, he wounding one boy and killing another named Christopher Snyder. The probably unintended tragedy only inflamed the Bostonians further. One such colonist was a former mixed-race slave and shipyard worker named Crispus Attucks. Attucks appears to have been actively involved in pro-liberty activities. He writing to Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson, quote, Sir, you will hear from us with astonishment. You ought to hear from us with horror. You are chargeable before God and man with our blood. The soldiers are but passive instruments, mere machines, neither moral nor voluntary agents in our destruction, more than the leaden pellets with which we were wounded. You were a free agent. You acted coolly with all that premeditated malice, not against us in particular, but against the people in general, which, in sight of the law, is an ingredient in the composition of murder. You will hear from us further hereafter." Less than a month after the killing of Snyder, on March 5th, an angry mob of radicals showed up to a house on King Street where most of the royal troops were stationed. Pelting the soldiers with ice and rocks, gunfire again went off from the royal side, killing five citizens, Crispus Attucks being the first to lose his life. This tragedy would become known as the Boston Massacre. Seized upon by the Sons of Liberty, the event became a perfect propaganda moment, portraying the royal troops and their masters in the parliament as cold-blooded. To keep events from getting worse for both sides of the Atlantic, most of the Townshend duties were repealed in 1770. By this point, though, more Americans came to view reconciliation with the mother country as unlikely, if not impossible, at this point. And more non-legal organizations throughout the colonies were formed to replace British rule. Parliament kept colonist grievances agitated by failing to repeal one element of the Townshend Act, a duty on tea. They also granted the East India Tea Company special privileges via the Tea Act, allowing them to bring cheaper tea into the colonies. Though making lower-costing tea available to the colonists should have been a popular move, the aforementioned duties on teas from other companies increased and was seen as hurting the often colonist-owned tea importation business. In addition, giving preference to the East India Tea Company was despised as a naked act of cronyism. To make matters worse, British lawmakers restored and began enforcing the Navigation Acts, which forced colonists to buy only British goods and barred the sometimes cheaper imports from other nations. All of these actions brought more protest both in more articulated and radical writings, such as the Votes and Proceedings, and in Deeds, the Boston Tea Party. In retaliation for the now outright American rebellion set in motion, Parliament passed the series of laws known as the Coercive Acts, which closed all commerce in the port of Boston, placing unelected Crown-appointed officials in Massachusetts and absolving these appointees of any crimes they might commit in pursuit of their duties. For such leaders as Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and others, break from the mother country was the only remaining option, and with the slow suffocation of Boston citizens caused by the inability to import food and other supplies, it became more and more difficult for those colonists still loyal to the crown to be able to defend its cruel and undemocratic actions. In 1774, the first Continental Congress was held, with representatives present from 12 of the 13 colonies. There was a vote for independence, but this failed by one vote. 
What was agreed upon was to unify in boycotting British goods, and a list of grievances was sent to the king. This petition was ignored, and the British government began preparing for a full-on military invasion. A second Continental Congress was held in 1775, where colonial leaders would encourage all the states to organize their militias in anticipation of the coming royal army, while also drawing up what would be the final plea to the crown to respect their full rights as English citizens. This became known as the, quote, Olive Branch Petition, unquote, which was also ignored. When the British army led by General Gage moved to seize colonist munitions at Concord, the well-organized colonists initiated their network of messengers and Minutemen. At Lexington, shots were exchanged between the British and the colonists, leaving a handful on both sides dead and a war finally officially in motion. On July 4, 1776, all 13 colonies declared themselves sovereign states at war with Britain and now were to be known as the United States of America. If you're still in a history mood, give In the Corner, Back by the Wood Pile 266 a listen. Featuring Dr. Dennis Bowman talking about slavery at the time of the American founding. Then there's 258, where we talk with Dr. Jason Stevens regarding the great compromiser, Kentuckian statesman Henry Clay. In the Corner, Back by the Wood Pile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.